0: Welcome to the Sick to Death podcast, a history of medicine in 10 objects, which are on display at our brand new medical museum in the heart of historic Chester. Sick to Death is supported by the Wellcome Trust. Now, buckle yourselves in. This is going to be a gory ride. This episode will remain in the 19th century for a little longer to explore the myriad innovations, discoveries and theories that transform the world of medicine. It's an age where cocaine is used as a remedy to toothache, dentures are created from dead people's teeth, theories of eugenics entrenched in vaccinations for smallpox were rolled out on a national scale and made compulsory for children, women were finally able to qualify as doctors and nursing was revolutionised that's not even to mention germ theory and pain relief. Today we're narrowing our focus to the UK, but there's still an awful lot to cover. So let's find out what our sick to death object is. Dean Patton, head honcho at Sick to Death. We're delving into the 19th century medical revolution in this episode. What do you have for us today?
1: We've got a electric shock therapy machine from the late 19th century. It's a little box. It's portable. You could buy one of these for your own home, should you wish, or any medical doctor could get one for their own surgery. And once you put it all together, there's a little wheel. You uh, turn the handle, turn the crank on the wheel. It turns a magnet around and attached to that two wires, which you would... Place onto the two fingers of one of your patients, and you would give them an electric shock. Why? (laughs) (laughs) So, this is in a time where new advances in engineering, the discovery of electricity, and the harnessing of it. And it's a bit like one of those things like the internet when everyone thinks all of our problems could be solved by this one particular thing. So, electricity was seen as the kind of panacea of you know, all sorts of problems, an object which sums up an age of kind of discovery and and invention, so a bit of a strange one this week.
0: One person to successfully utilise the power of electricity was the chemist and inventor Humphrey Davy. He'd already discovered the potential anaesthetic qualities of nitrous oxide, more commonly known as laughing gas, in 1799, and in the early 19th century, he'd go on to use electricity to isolate many chemical elements. In an 1802 lecture, Davy declared that, quote, Science has bestowed upon man many powers which may be called creative, which have enabled him to change and modify the beings around him. End quote. The emphasis on he was typical for the time, and certainly, in a patriarchal society where women couldn't even obtain a university degree, many of the scientific advances were made by men. It would be remiss, however, not to recognise the important role women played in changing the landscape of medical care.
2: I think sometimes people think that Florence Nightingale invented nursing, but that is not true, unfortunately.
0: That's Dr Deborah Brunton, medical historian and author of Health and Wellness in the 19th century.
2: People had been nursing each other for hundreds and thousands of years. You know, mothers looked after their children when they were sick. There were hospitals from the 18th century which had nurses. They were kind of more like domestic servants. They did the cleaning and they didn't really do much medical work. And in fact, Florence trained with a Protestant nursing order in Germany. That's where she learns how to be a nurse. What she does for nursing, though, is she really makes it a respectable career for middle-class women. And she sets out a pattern of training that becomes absolutely standard, worldwide. It was made possible by her work in the Crimea. We all know Florence Nightingale as the lady with the lamp. She went out to the Crimean War in 1854 after there had been a tremendous scandal about the poor quality of care provided to soldiers. And she arrives in the hospital in Scutari, and what she does basically is really get things reorganised. She doesn't do a lot of hands-on nursing. She's more like an administrator. But she gets a terrifically good press and there's a fund set up in her name. So when she comes back after the war, she has this really large sum of money at her disposal. And she uses it to found a nursing school at St. Thomas's Hospital. And she sets out a curriculum of how a nurse should be trained. And it's very much a role based around caring for people. It's not medical, it's about supporting the patient, making sure they're clean and well fed and well looked after. And that's a really important part of how people got better before they had effective drugs. Nurses who had trained in her school take her methods on to other hospitals all around Britain. And in fact, they go to America, to Australia, to India, and they take her ideas around the world. It must be said that there was sometimes opposition to Nightingale nursing. Doctors in particular weren't all that keen. They were a bit worried that hospital matrons might take over their wards and not allow them to do what they wanted to do. So she changes the character of nursing and she makes it into really the profession that we still recognise today.
0: Born just 16 years after Nightingale, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson further broadened the horizon when it came to women and medicine.
2: Elizabeth Garrett Anderson was a really pivotal figure in getting women into the medical profession. Before the 19th century, women were not allowed to study medicine. And when Elizabeth decided that she wanted to become a medical practitioner, she was refused entry to medical schools. But she's very determined and she managed to get a post as a nurse in a hospital and she hires private tutors to teach her in medical subjects. And gradually she acquires the experience and the knowledge. And in 1865, she goes to the Society of Apothecaries to apply for a qualification. And they say she can't sit the exams to become a doctor. And her father, who's very supportive of her, threatens to take them to court. So they give in and she sits the examination. Seven people sat the examination that day. Only three of them passed and she passes with the highest marks. So she becomes the first professionally qualified doctor in Britain. The Society of Apothecaries are not very happy, it must be said, and they immediately pass a rule saying no other women can apply to sit their exams. So that route into medicine is closed. Elizabeth's role, however, is important in another way. I mean, in one way, so she sets a precedent, although it's not a precedent that can be followed by other women, but she sets up in practice and she works as a doctor And in 1874, she sets up the London School of Medicine for women to train other women in medicine. She herself is a lecturer there. She works there for the rest of her professional life. There are male staff and then increasingly, as other women qualify, it has a female staff. And these medical schools for women are really crucial in training women in medicine and then they go off to universities and get their official qualifications. And without Elizabeth Garrett Anderson's example and her work as a teacher, you can argue that women would have really struggled to get into medicine because men were quite determined that they shouldn't. They didn't want women to study medicine because they thought they wouldn't be capable of qualifying. And they didn't like the idea that women actually might turn out to be quite good at practicing medicine. So they were kind of, you know, a woman can't do it and, oh, they actually, they might be really, really good at it and then we've got more competition. So she's really important in breaking the barriers down and letting women into medicine.
0: Let's now move on to some of the century's medical innovations. Throughout history, one of the major obstacles in surgery has been pain. During the late 18th and early 19th centuries, various candidates for surgical pain relief were put forward, from laughing gas to ether but none was as successful as chloroform.
2: The discovery of chloroform is one of these great stories in the history of medicine. It was discovered by a doctor called James Young Simpson. He was an obstetrician working in Edinburgh. And obviously he's working with women who are giving birth and they go through extreme pain. So he's interested in finding ways of trying to manage that pain for them. It had been discovered that ether was a way of making people unconscious so that they don't feel pain. But ether had problems as an anaesthetic agent. It can be quite dangerous, and sometimes people don't go under, as they say. So Simpson was looking for a better alternative, and he does it by self-experimentation. In other words, he and his assistants tried sniffing chemicals that were similar to ether to see if they would have similar effects. And the story goes that one evening they tried chloroform and they woke up under the table. Now, we're not sure if that story is actually true, but the basic facts are true. They did try sniffing chloroform and they did pass out. And they realized that this was another possible anesthetic agent. So Simpson carries out various experiments with it and various trials with it. He's an obstetrician, so he tries it on some of his female patients, and it works really, really well. So he publishes his results, and chloroform is taken up very quickly. And quite soon, it gets the royal seal of approval because Queen Victoria's eighth child was born with the help of chloroform, so she doesn't feel the pain of childbirth.
3: It's hard to underestimate what a trailblazer Queen Victoria was in using chloroform.
0: That's Professor Kate Williams, royal historian and author of Rival Queens.
3: Because there was completely a feeling at the time that women need to feel pain in childbirth for two reasons. Number one, every childbirth and the pain of childbirth was, for many religious people, a remembrance of Eve's activities. So every childbirth showed the fact that Eve had given Adam the apple and we'd been thrown out of paradise and therefore women had to repent for that in the pain of childbirth. So Women get the privilege of birthing children, of bringing new life into the world, but that is countered with pain. And what's also important to remember about Queen Victoria is that every one of her births had to be witnessed by politicians, as well as having many doctors there. And the politicians would be in the room with her behind a screen, so they could hear everything that was going on. And not only did she have to deal with them in her normal life, but also there would be a convention that she couldn't make all the noise that you do as a woman going through childbirth to try and bear the pain, all the screaming and shouting, that she couldn't do that because it would be seen as shocking to all these men who were never normally in a birthing room. Queen Victoria's use of chloroform was really absolutely vital in terms of normalising childbirth, which had pain relief, normalising the idea that childbirth should not be painful, that actually it didn't affect the healthy baby and it didn't affect the mother's bond with the baby if she had a pain-free birth. I mean, this is a massive progress because you know, this isn't a time when everyone knows what's going on with scans. Many babies would be what we term back-to-back now, which is incredibly painful. Some babies would not be the right way up, so then they would be very long and very exhausting.
0: The impact of the queen using pain relief was huge and filtered through society very quickly.
3: Once she used chloroform, it became incredibly fashionable. And all of the upper classes suddenly said, well, maybe we should be doing this too. And it did filter down. And she was almost really a guinea pig. This was really a very new technology. And so she was a guinea pig because the doctor changed the way he gave it to her. Initially he kind of used his inhaler, like sort of a, a bit like a gas mask. And then he moved it to actually dropping it onto her face. So that would give her a better and stronger dose.
0: Despite the clear benefits to the patient, pain relief certainly had its detractors.
3: It wasn't just religious backlash against the Queen. There was also doctors themselves saying that women should not take pain relief. And there was even discussion about this in The Lancet, the, the very prestigious medical journal. I think, obviously, doctors were saying that they need to know how much pain a woman is in so that they can tell how progressed labour is. They didn't have scans. But I think that the very fact was that the birth for the Queen was so successful All three of these births were very successful. And after that, it carried on being successful. But other women who took it in high society and slowly going down through society. And so the proof is in the pudding, I think.
0: Women weren't the only ones to welcome the development. Childbirth was a risky business, especially if you were poor.
3: There was more support among men than you think. I mean, Let's remember that Dr Johnson, when he said that marriage is a triumph of hope over experience, He was really talking about the fact that so often you'd marry a woman, she'd be wonderful, and then she'd die because of childbirth. Childbirth was such a dangerous thing for women to go through. So I think that there was really a great movement in Victorian society saying, but how can we make this safe? How can we make it happen that we can marry someone, she can have our children, and she won't die?
0: Of course, it wasn't just those giving birth who benefited from pain relief.
2: Chloroform really makes an impact, though, in surgery. There had been surgery before, but the patient didn't have a lot of pain relief. They were given alcohol to try and dull the pain. But you can imagine, it must have been excruciatingly painful. And patients undergoing surgery had to be physically restrained. So the patient is lying on an operating table with four or five people holding them down while the surgeon is trying to operate, Or as a friend of mine once put it, the patient is trying to climb off the table.
4: Well, these operating theatres, they were filled to the rafters with ticketed spectators. People actually bought tickets to see the life and death struggle play out before them on the centre stage.
0: That's Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris, medical historian and author of The Butchering Art.
4: And of course, they carried with them the grime and dirt of everyday life. These places were not sterile. They were not sanitary. And the surgeons themselves rarely washed their hands or their instruments. And they carried with them this sort of cadaverous smell of rotting flesh, which they called good old hospital stink. So these places didn't just look different, they smelled different. And if you're talking about the early 19th century before 1846, when ether is discovered, the patient was fully awake. So it certainly felt very different for the patient. It would have been a very terrifying experience. Detailed
0: accounts of pre-anesthetic surgery from the patient's perspective are relatively rare. One such account comes from the novelist Frances Burney, who underwent a mastectomy in 1811. She wrote to her sister Esther, describing in vivid detail the experience. Warning to listeners, a graphic description follows.
5: In defiance of a terror that surpasses all description and the most torturing pain. Yet, when the dreadful steel was plunged into the breast, cutting through veins, arteries, flesh, nerves, I needed no injunctions not to restrain my cries. I began a scream that lasted unintermittingly during the whole time of the incision, and I almost marvel that it rings not in my ears still. So excruciating was the agony. When the wound was made, and the instrument was withdrawn, the pain seemed undiminished, for the air that suddenly rushed into those delicate parts felt like a mass of minute but sharp and forked poignards that were tearing the edges of the wound. But when again, I felt the instrument describing a curve, cutting against the grain, if I may so say, While the flesh resisted in a manner so forcibly as to oppose and tire the hand of the operator, who was forced to change from the right to the left, then indeed, I thought, I must have expired. Presently the terrible cutting was renewed, and worse than ever, to separate the bottom, the foundation of this dreadful gland from the parts to which it adhered, Oh, heaven! I I then felt the knife rattling against the breastbone, scraping it. This performed while I yet remained in utterly speechless torture. My dearest Esther, not for days, not for weeks, but for months I could not speak of this terrible business without nearly again going through it. I could not think of it without impunity. I was sick. I was disordered by a single question. Even now, nine months after it is over, I have a headache from going on with the account and this miserable account, which I began three months ago at least, I dare not revise nor read. The recollection is still so painful.
2: Now you can imagine once chloroform comes along, They're put under anesthetic, they become quiet, they're not trying to climb off the table, they don't experience the pain of surgery. So surgery goes from this chaotic, painful, horrible procedure to something that's Much more modern. It's calm, it's very controlled. The surgeon doesn't have to work as quickly as possible so that his patient doesn't die on the operating table of the shock. He can work more slowly and more carefully. He can carry out more complex operations, and the operating theatre becomes a place of peace rather than, as I say, this terrible chaotic scene. So, chloroform is a really, really important step forward in medicine. I mean, I don't know about you, but if I ever had to undergo surgery without an anaesthetic, I think I would just say, no, I don't want to do it. But if there's a possibility of anaesthesia, you have a much better chance of survival. You don't have to go through a lot of pain. You're much more likely to have a successful outcome.
0: Despite huge advances, with medicine only just moving away from galanic ideas of miasma, surgery was not a profession for the faint-hearted.
4: Surgery was a really dangerous profession for both a patient and the surgeon. So going into medicine at this time, this is before mass vaccinations, and it's before antibiotics in the 20th century, and certainly before people understood germ theory. So it was very dangerous. These, these uh, medical students would go into medical school, and they'd actually die as a result of their chosen profession. So it was dangerous for everybody involved. But of course, the patient was at the highest risk. And mortality rates in these hospitals could be as high as 70%. Although it's difficult to know exactly those numbers because this is before we had really meticulous data record-keeping in these hospitals. But the biggest threat to patients really was post-operative infection. If you had an amputation, you could almost expect that the wound was going to get infected because these places were really unhygienic. And again, the surgeons, they weren't washing their hands, they weren't washing their instruments. So your chances of survival actually decreased depending on when you got your operation in the day. If you were one of the last patients, you're getting onto the table, it's covered in blood and pus and all kinds of fluids from the last patient. And so your chances of getting some kind of cross-contamination went through the roof. And Lister steps into this scene in the 1840s, and he's frustrated because he's, of course, seen his patients dying at record numbers as well.
0: It's difficult to overestimate the significance of Joseph Lister,
4: well, I like to say that Joseph Lister saved more lives than any other person, although I'm sure this is, this is arguable. I know that you're looking at Jenner and uh, the vaccine and the vaccination, so you could probably argue that also he has a stake in that. But if you extrapolate to see what Lister did and what we now can do, because we understand germ theory, but let me step you through how he kind of gets there. Basically, one of the important things to remember about Joseph Lister is he's a Quaker. And Quakers at this time are not allowed to partake in forms of entertainment like singing and dancing. And so when he's growing up as a boy, he is allowed to study nature and to pursue science. And his father is a great amateur scientist, and he gives him a microscope. So Lister enters medical school in the 1840s, and he brings with him that microscope. He is very scientifically trained at that stage. Now, Lister's frustrated because his patients are dying at these incredible high numbers, and he has this curiosity, and he's always questioning why is this happening. And he reads a paper by a French scientist, Louis Pasteur. Louis Pasteur puts forth this idea of germ theory. Now, Louis Pasteur is trying to figure out why wine is spoiling. This is very important to the French, by the way. He needs to understand why the wine is spoiling. And what he notices is when, if anybody who's listening to this have ever smelled spoiled wine, you'll know that it smells quite sour. And he reckons that it's germs or bacteria that he's seen under his microscope that's getting into these wine vats and it's spoiling the wine. So Lister reads this and he wonders if the germs are getting into his patient's wounds and also causing them to fester because they have this sour smell. And in fact, surgeons used to say that the wound had soured or the wound had healed sweetly if it had healed without infection. So Lister thinks, hmm, okay, there's this sour smell with wine is telling me that it's germs or bacteria that's causing that souring. Perhaps that's what's happening to my patients. And so what he does is he takes an antiseptic carbolic acid, and for various reasons, he comes up with carbolic acid. He starts treating his patients with this, and he finds that it is killing the germs and his patients are healing. Now, when he comes out with his theories, he, he starts to advocate for germ theory. He develops a system of antisepsis. There's a lot of pushback. And people ask me all the time, why? Why would anybody not believe in germ theory? But you have to remember that this was a time when people didn't understand germs. So you're born into a system, into a paradigm where germs exist, so you accept it. But Lister's this young surgeon and he's going around and he's telling these older surgeons, the establishment, that essentially there's these invisible little creatures and they're killing their patients. And this is very hard for them to accept. Because the microscope isn't really used in medicine at this time. The microscope has been around for hundreds of years, but doctors don't really use it in medicine because they don't think that anything that the microscope can tell them would actually change the way that they would treat their patients. So Lister's coming around. He's saying that there is these invisible creatures. This sounds insane. I mean, when you think about it, it does sound insane. And the other part of that is that he's telling these surgeons that they were inadvertently killing their patients all along. And... There are a lot of almost comical stories about these surgeons and their mishaps in the operating theaters and we can laugh about it today. But the truth is that they were in the business of saving lives and it would have been frustrating to see your patient die time and again. And I think that was a hard pill for them to swallow. So what Lister does is he realizes he can't change the establishment but he can change the hearts and minds of his students. And so he begins to teach his antiseptic system to the younger generation. He teaches them about germ theory, and they go out into the world, and they become known as the Listerians, and they spread the word about germs. And that is how the revolution happens.
0: Meanwhile, towards the end of the century, the understanding of the human body was taking a darker turn with the emergence of new branches of pseudoscience that would also have long-lasting consequences.
6: Especially in the late eighteenth, early early 19th century, you see many theories categorising the natural world, and people start to apply that to humans as well.
0: That's Dr Anton Howes, historian of invention and author of Arts and Minds.
6: They start to think, well, maybe there are patterns in the way that we function the way that we look that we observe in animals or sorts of physical differences that have a bearing on their activities perhaps this is also having a bearing on humans and i suppose that people quickly start working out that given we've been measuring so many different things and coming up with all this data and noticing these new patterns let's start doing this for human skulls let's look at the the size for example of people's heads and they they start to assume that perhaps there is a very a solid pattern here that you know if we were to measure people's heads, we'd be able to work out you know what kind of tendencies do they have. Are they going to be smart people? Are they going to be potentially criminal people? And I guess they just see this potential. Having used measurements so successfully in other realms to notice patterns and discover scientific laws, I guess there's this hope that they can apply this to humans. In a way that'll allow them to improve institutions, right? Is I guess the hope is that it'll be a bit like minority report that you know, if you if you know the kinds of people who commit crimes, you can just kind of prevent them from committing those crimes if, if there are these visible signs that they might, you know, I don't know, some low forehead or something. And so you do see all of these different techniques that people start using to measure, you know, there's a lot of invention that goes into trying to measure the bumps. And the different parts of the skull to try and work out which bits, in terms of this kind of mass data collection, might be more important for different traits relative to others. So it becomes a kind of area of excitement, I think, and, and, and very influential, right? Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, has Sherlock Holmes using phrenology to solve certain cases. You have other scientists, born uh, natural philosophers, who get very interested in it. Some of them go off it in the, in the 19th century. Some of them stick with it.
0: Although the idea of measuring someone's personality through their head and face shape might sound like an archaic medical curio to us now, we cannot ignore the link phrenology and other examples of social Darwinism have to wider themes of scientific racism, ableism and classism.
6: I imagine at the time it must have been an area of great excitement. Little did they realise how much kind of cruelty it would engender later on.
7: The eugenics movement was a socio-political movement that was informed by science. That's Dr Subhadra Das, historian,
0: comedian and museum curator at the UCL Pathology and Science Collections.
7: So it started out as a scientific idea, but then it became a really hugely popular political movement at the turn of the 20th century. And the idea of it was that it was going to be possible to breed better people based on scientific selection of their traits. So eugenics was a word that was coined by a Victorian scientist called Francis Galton in 1883 and his idea of what it meant to to breed better people was to do with being able to measure their physical traits And if we could select the traits that we thought were the best or would help to improve the race as it went on, then the goal was to encourage those people to have children and to improve the race as it went on. Galton's idea arose out of an existing context of a lot of different scientific ideas that were also the same ways in which race was conceptualized. So, physiognomy is one of those ideas, which is the way that you look is the way that you are. So, one of the stories to do in the history of medicine, people might be familiar with the idea of the four humours. So if someone had a lot of blood in their system or a lot of yellow bile or black bile or phlegm, those were the old kind of medical ways of treating people. And that developed into the science of physiognomy, which went on to say that you could relate behavioural traits like someone's intelligence or their character to physical traits like their physical appearance. And that was the way in which race was conceptualised existing race science in Galton's time was to do with the idea that some people even thought that some types of humans might be different species. And all of this is actually bound up in the idea of white supremacy. So the way that racism worked in science was that you had these different races and that the white race was considered to be above all of them in terms of physical superiority, in terms of intellectual superiority. We know now that this is an incorrect idea but really the foundations of white supremacy was based on this kind of scientific racism and eugenics was one of the aspects of it because the idea was that if you could breed out sort of the weaker or those who were perceived to be the less desirable elements of society and then that was going to be what was going to improve the race but you had to have a very clear idea of who you meant when you said the weaker elements. And that historically tended to involve people who were not white, it tended to involve people who are disabled or people with learning disabilities. And so that is why eugenics is a really difficult, it's an important thing to talk about, but it can be a very difficult thing to talk about because of these legacies of racism and ableism. So the trick of all of these kinds of ideas that become so insidious, and they start to infiltrate our mindset, almost to the point where we don't even realise that they're there anymore, is it's it's not really a eureka moment. It's kind of a, a gentle and a slow growing of an idea that's kind of filtering in from different places. So this is what Galton's real genius was, was that he wasn't just writing in scientific journals and giving talks at the Royal Society. He was writing in public, you know, in the public press. So he was writing in magazines and things like the Fortnightly Review with all of these different ideas. He was doing it for a long time. So he was doing it through the 1860s, 70s, 80s. And not a lot of people were paying attention, scientists were paying attention, because his ideas were hugely influential in setting up what is essentially the modern study of genetics. But there wasn't so much public picking up of it until the Boer War. So that was happening in the last decade of the 19th century. And it's a long story, but Britain was sending troops to go and fight in South Africa. And the people who were being recruited were failing the physical test in numbers that had been greater than before. So that was one thing that was kind of in the public imagination. It's like, oh, the physical fitness of the troops is not what it should be. What does that imply for the physical fitness of the race and the success of the British Empire? Also, at the same time, you know, there's been growing urbanisation. The Industrial Revolution's been running rampant for the last few decades. And so there's a growing, what's perceived of as an underclass of unintelligent criminal urban poor. So the tipping point kind of comes towards the end of the 19th century when all of these ideas coalesce. Once the scientific idea of the British race is established, that's when people start to become concerned about the quality of it. And they think, oh, well, now is the time to actually intervene in ways in which we can, we need to start to improve the race
0: the consequences of the eugenics movement have a long tail.
7: Well, the legacies are enormous because eugenics really is a a subject or an idea or a way of thinking that never really went away. And the problem with it is that it really limits our capacity to think about how marginalised people can contribute to our society in ways beyond just thinking about how people contribute, say, financially or to a capitalist system. And the trouble with the legacies of ideas to do with racism and ableism is that people are marginalized in such a way as it's the science that says that they they are somehow lesser than or that somehow they are deserving of their fate. So a really good example of this is, for example, the ways in which non-white populations in the UK were talked about, or are still are being talked about, during the COVID-19 pandemic. So it became very clear quite early on in the pandemic that people who are black, people who are Asian and other ethnic minorities were catching the virus in greater numbers and were dying in greater numbers than they were represented in the population. And one of the immediate things that The people thought to ask was, is there something that makes them genetically susceptible? And the point of that is, there may well be something that makes them genetically susceptible, but that's also a really convenient alibi that the science is giving us for not necessarily addressing those issues to do with social inequity. So BAME people were the ones who were in the frontline jobs. They were the ones who were key workers care, emergency workers in hospitals. They were the ones who were driving the buses and keeping the transport system going and working in supermarkets. And they didn't necessarily have the option to to work from home, some of them, it meant that not only were they put on the front line, but sometimes they couldn't work, then they would have no source of money coming in. So they were, they were essentially forced to go to work. And all of these concepts are really, because it continues to make sure that we think about people in these very pigeonholed kinds of ways. So we continue to think about people in racialized ways. We continue to think about people in terms of their ability and what they can and can't contribute without necessarily thinking about what it is that we can do to make our society more fair and just overall. The 19th century was
0: one of huge change for living standards, public health, medical ideas and discoveries. It was also a period where science and pseudoscience were used to bolster prejudice such as phrenology and eugenics. In this century, for the first time, patients could go to a clean and well-organised hospital, undergo an operation without pain, have a massively reduced risk of infection and the very real possibility of surviving. There was just one more surgical challenge to tackle, blood loss. This will be explored in our next episode. With thanks to today's guests, Dr. Deborah Brunton, Professor Kate Williams, Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris, Dr. Anton House, and Dr. Sabadra Das. This series was written, narrated, and produced by myself, Rebecca Redeal. It was edited and produced by Peter Curry, and it was brought to you by Sick to Death. For Medicine Through Time GCSE students, revision notes and sources are available via our website, www.sicktodeath.org.